0: I'm Olivia Maynard and welcome to The Domain of Women, a podcast highlighting the stories and ideas of women in the social sciences. Today, I am live in the studio with Dr. Jennifer Keene, Dean of Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at Chapman University. Dr. Keene is a specialist in the American military experience during World War I and has numerous accolades and books that showcase her brilliance and expertise in her field. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Keene. It is truly a pleasure. So would you mind speaking a little bit more about your background and what your research specifically focuses on?
1: Yeah, sure. First, uh, thanks so much for inviting me this morning to come in and talk uh, to your audience. So I am a, a, an academically trained historian. I have a PhD in history. I've been teaching um, American history for a long time. And my area of expertise is in the First World War but more broadly in a field of study known as war and society studies, which are studies that really think about um, less about the operational strategic aspects of going to war, but more about the experience of war and how it proves transformative uh, for many societies. And even how society's values and, and culture can impact the way that wars are waged. So in a broad sense, that's My uh, intellectual interest, Um, as you mentioned, right now I'm an administrator, I'm dean of the college, so I don't have that much time anymore for a scholarship, although I I still do continue to research and write. Now I spend a lot of time thinking about the way to make visible the ongoing relevance of the arts, humanities, and social sciences and to convince students like yourself that these are valuable (laughs) areas.
0: (laughs) That's awesome, I'm so glad to have you here um, because you cover such a broad range of interests as well as like what you do in your professional life. So what initially brought you to wanting to be a historian and then focusing on World War I or just the experiences of those people?
1: Right, so thank you, that's a great question. Um, I was always interested in um, in um, stories as a child and growing through school. I wanted to be a writer. I think you're a screenwriter. Yes, screen we're major, right? very similar. <laughs> so, um, I I always knew I was a writer, and I started in creative writing, and probably like a lot of um students here my parents said well how are you going to make a living with creative writing why don't you think about journalism so i went to college and initially was a journalism major and I started in that and i always thought that would be my career track um but about halfway through i i felt that i wanted a little more not necessarily substance but Mm -hmm. i just felt i was more curious about the world and about history, then maybe my journalism classes were allowing <laughs> me to explore. So I, I ended up becoming a history major, but still again, thought I would end up with a job as a journalist. Uh-huh. And I had a job as a journalist lined up upon graduation, and, but at the same time I was offered a fellowship to do a master's uh-huh. degree in history. So it's kind of my crossroads. Yes. I didn't know that's what I was deciding, so I'll also <laughs> mention that as a student, you made these decisions, and um, I'm, I'm gonna be very honest with you about why I chose to take the history path um yes i was very interested in history but mm-hmm. i still had no idea i would become a professional historian but i was a um a, a rower and i rode on the varsity yeah. team in my college george washington i had started late so i had another year of eligibility if i stayed oh, in okay. the college program so that's what i did yeah <laughs> so was kind of that's a nice <laughs> But of course, it set me on a completely different path career wise. And that's the thing. Sometimes it's really not why you make the decision. You you end up uh, heading off in a direction you never anticipated. And I've never regretted it.
0: That's amazing. And then do you have a personal connection to like World War I? Like what what's your interest in World War I? I love this question
1: because I get asked this all <laughs> the time and especially when I was younger and um, just starting out, um, there was really, a lot of people were mystified about why I wanted to study this war. And essentially I was studying mostly men because I was really looking at soldiers' experiences mm-hmm. during the war. and And I would often get asked exactly this, I mean, uh, did you serve in the military? Did people in your family serve in yeah. the military? I mean, why are you interested in this? And what I can say is that I started really interested in the era in which World War One takes place—the Progressive Era—and I won't bore you with the long story <laughs> of how I ended up with World War One. But what I realized, and when you are uh, go into graduate school and you start writing, you have to find something, some way to make a contribution. Yeah. So I was interested in the era I knew at that time, very few people were working on the First World War in the American experience, so it was kind of an open subject for me. And I just, the more I got into it, I found it fascinating, and honestly, to this day, I still find it interesting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people move on to different topics throughout their academic career, and I've kind of just expanded my interest That's in the great. First World War, be out from the United States to thinking about colonial soldiers' experiences, yeah. thinking about uh, the whole global experience. But my, my takeaway from my particular journey again for student mm-hmm. listeners is that it was an intellectual journey for me. Yeah. I did not have a biographical or identity reason for the path that I took. Only afterwards did I find out that I, after I'd already picked the topic mm-hmm. and worked on it for quite a while, did I, did I find out that I did indeed have relatives in my family who oh. was served in the First World War. And, and I was probably told that at some point, but it didn't. I didn't care because yeah. I was young and <laughs> I didn't care. But then suddenly I found it interesting, and so sometimes our, it will be our life experiences that direct us in terms of what we're gonna study, but sometimes it's the life of the mind and it's just something grabs your attention and grabs your intellectual curiosity and you should feel free to run with it. So that's that's what happened to me.
0: That is amazing. Thank you for sharing. I I love hearing like why people yeah. love what they love. And so that's, it's a great story. Um so the topic of this podcast is about women in the social sciences. So how do you think that your experience as a woman has shaped your experience in your field either professionally, academia in when you were studying, how has it shaped it?
1: Um well I think given by the nature of what I study yes. and the fact that I was in professional organizations like the Society for Military History, I did I was in a sense coming into a predominantly male-dominated yeah. field of academe. And I think that that was something I had to learn to negotiate, and I mm-hmm. had to learn how to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, and especially if you're young, and at that time I always looked young, and so it could be a little daunting at times to kind of find your your way. I would say that um, in... in um, sort of challenging stereotypes people might have about the field of military history. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I've, I've got a lot of great mentorship from, from people and I actually was encouraged by uh, individuals to seek leadership positions in professional yeah. organizations. So, so at the end, I ended up being president of the society wow. military um, history. I mean, that was a long journey, but, mm-hmm. but I think that it did help me that I was, being encouraged along the way, because I came in just at the moment where there began to be growing awareness that there needed to be, you know, these these fields of study, academia in general, needed to be more more accessible um, to at that point women. And now we've we've taken another step to be thinking yeah. about about marginalized uh, communities and making sure that there's room for everybody at the table. And so then when I became president, I did I felt like I did my bit to try to push that push that next step. But I think that there's definitely challenges uh, that women face in these fields that men don't. I mean, i just give you an example from when I first started teaching. Mm-hmm. I was a graduate assistant and I used to always like come, you know, pretty dressed up. And I had people make very disparaging comments to me. I mean, they used to call behind my back. They would call me like the cover girl graduate student. Oh. And I, I confronted these male colleagues one day and I said, well, if I go into class like you with a T-shirt and jeans mm-hmm. and, you know, flip flops, do you think anybody's going to take me seriously at 24, yeah. 25? So you you're you you do not realize how lucky you are. that You can just roll out of bed and walk into class. Mm-hmm. And because you're a man and a white man everybody's, you know, those kids are going to listen to you, yeah. even though you're only a few years older than them. And I, I don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. And that they kind of, it helped them sort of see that there's a difference here. And I yeah. think that exists to this day. I, I, I would mm-hmm. say even now, I mean, I can have my, my mom, you know, look mm-hmm. on the weekends, but I never come to campus like that. I would never do that uh, because yeah. I think even... The, so that's just a small example, but I think that there's other ways, and I have had times where I was maybe upset about something that happened and have people say things like, oh, don't get so hysterical. Uh And and again, it's all this kind of gendered language. And whereas if a male colleague blows up, it's just like, oh, he's just blowing off steam. So these are just subtle things. But, you know, you carry them with you and it affects how you behave. And I do think that even today, uh, for women in the workplace and women who are mm-hmm. aspiring for academic careers or leadership positions, that there's still different things you have to be thinking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, everyone I've talked to has said very similar yes. things. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not new. It's not you. It's not just you. It's, yes. it's everyone. Okay. So. And
1: it's not over. I think that's it's exactly definitely we not over. To think of how much progress we made, and we've made tremendous progress but it doesn't mean that
0: it's still completely a level playing field. Exactly. I really admire you because you have held such, like, prestigious positions. So how how do you think that, like, you being in positions of leadership and, like, you're a dean of a college, Mm -hmm. you've been president of these, like, esteemed societies, how do you think that can, like, inspire women in your field to be like, okay, like, I'm not alone?
1: Right. Well, I think that um – Uh, One of the things that really surprised me early on was when I would start getting notes from uh, students or staffs and uh, say when they're graduating or maybe, you know, people leaving to go take other positions uh, saying to me, thanks for being such a great role model. Mm -hmm. And I I had never, of course, really thought of myself that way. (laughs) but then i thought of course that makes sense and it also means i have a responsibility yeah so besides being a role model maybe in just the managerial skills that yeah. i have or the the academic work that i do that at as you move on just as i was mentored and i was encouraged and i was supported i have that responsibility to do the same so when i go to the professional society meetings now i um, meet with many graduate students you know uh, uh, try to support them as they're moving through their program uh, with our students here I even though I'm in the dean's office I have a, a leadership and advisory council mm-hmm. to try to talk to as many students as possible and, and then even if I'm not personally able to mentor all these students create structures where we think that, where we can enable that to mm-hmm. happen and so that I think you, you, you get an awareness that people are looking at you in ways that you didn't expect to be looked at. Yeah. So you just have to, have to, um, embrace that and, and say, it's your turn to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their turn where you're helped and then you have to take your turn. It's your turn now to, to help, 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 help others.
0: Thank you so much for being that person and for supporting. Um, I think mentorship is so important, especially in a university setting where you're you're learning, what you're passionate about. Um, and I wanna talk a little bit more about like what you're passionate about in particular. What is your favorite part of your research? Like, What brings you joy from learning about this topic?
1: I think that for me, it's telling stories that I think need to be told. Mm-hmm. And I think for all that's probably typical of all historians that you believe that you have um, a way of looking at the past that helps people see things that haven't been seen because they're relevant to the present. So you can't tell every story. Yeah. But after, uh, as I worked um, in the First World War, I started with very general thinking about soldiers' experiences very generally. Mm-hmm. And then I did a lot of work on African-American soldiers' experiences. Yeah. And I think that that, was, that became a very passionate area for me because I was seeing, um, in me now, today, we talk about systemic injustice and we see, um, um uh you know we understand over policing and and mm-hmm. the problems of, of racial disparities in terms of of the the lack of ability to transfer generational wealth but I was sort of studying that before those were really common fields so I feel that that was something that I was able to contribute to the perspective that we have now on those issues mm-hmm. when it comes to a really important period of history yeah. when um, a lot of that was was taking place place was taking formation mm-hmm. so so that makes me very passionate and in terms of the research that i have and then i think now at this stage in my career i've kind of moved to the uh to being passionate about bringing people together to collaborate and have conversations mm-hmm. so i have to be careful in the projects i pick at the moment because of my heavy administrative responsibilities yeah. so i'm working right now on an anthology um, which is called, um, it's, it's a Cambridge history uh, of uh, war in America. And we're bringing together uh, 35 people to contribute to the anthology different <clears throat> understandings at different moments in, in American history and different topics. from a war and society perspective how does that change your understanding of the experience of war Mm -hmm. in the united states and it's a great project because we're bringing all these people together to talk to each other and there are a lot of people who never did talk to each other before and i find that really satisfying Mm -hmm. because i feel that it's not just my authorship but sort of i'm working on a a, with a co-author on this Um, we're facilitating a conversation about where the state of the field is and where it could go that will mm-hmm. people are already going to use it in classes it's going to inspire a whole new new generation of, of scholarship yeah so it's kind of like along the ideas of mentoring like that you're going to help shape the field and what the field looks like in the future in a different way mm-hmm. one way is like my research what i publish and now yeah. this is by bringing people together and helping create new paradigms that can set new research um, trajectories um, in the future
0: that's fantastic. Wow. I, I'm looking forward to looking into that. Um, so the study of history is important. I mean, it's important to know what happened. Um, but in more like specificity, why is it important that we study World War One and the stories of the people of right. World War One?
1: Well, the First World War, especially for the United States, is definitely underappreciated in terms of its significance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in a, in a global sense, the First World War really sets out the period of the 20th century. I mean, without the First World War, you don't have the Soviet Union because Mm -hmm. the Russian Revolution occurs. You don't um, have... Um, perhaps World War II because of the failures of the Versailles Peace Treaty. You, you know, here you see the seeds of the beginning of decolonization, the seeds of the emergence of America as a global power. So really, from a global perspective, it's hard to underestimate the importance of the First World War. But what about America? Like, we came in late. We, we, compared to the other belligerent nations, we lost relatively few men. But I think for the United States, there were really a few significant things that happened. First of all, um, Woodrow Wilson really is, in my mind, I mean, love him or hate him, and mm-hmm. I it's easy to hate him right now. Um, he really was the, the author of American foreign policy in the 20th and 21st century. We yeah. still live in a Wilsonian world. Mm-hmm. The principles about making the world safe for democracy, about just, you know, trying to create a, a, a war to end all wars, you know, using international collective security organizations to, to resolve disagreements. I mean, those are still our foreign policy goals. We're still yeah. trying to achieve that. So I think you need to understand where that starts, um, even understand foreign policy today. The second thing is that going back to my work on African American soldiers, it's really in the First World War that we see the origins of the modern civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those soldiers came back um, uh, and and mobilized uh, civil rights, the civil rights movement in a new direction. Yeah, and so when we study the civil rights movement, we like the greatest hits approach. Mm-hmm. Let's just get to the good stuff. Yeah, right. Let's get to all the satisfying things. Yes, of, you know of the Montgomery bus boycott and mm-hmm. Selma and and the, the Voting Rights Act of yes. 1965. But you don't get any of that without generations before that didn't have a greatest hits, but the strategies and the investment and the way that they you know, their children carried the struggle forward, that's where you get to the 1950s and 1960s. And I think since so, so many times, things that happen in our society, we are standing on the shoulders of giants and we mm-hmm. don't even understand that. And you could make that case for women's rights, American yes. civil rights, um, all these all these things. And I think it's, it's, it's criminal in a way not to give those earlier generations there due for the sacrifices they made and they never saw success in their life. Yeah. But so we're just going to erase them from our memories and mm-hmm. not realize that we benefited from their sacrifices. I mean, this just true for female suffrage too, right? Yeah. The Amendment, which also, it's not really directly out of the First World War, but the First World War definitely plays a factor. So, and then the last thing I would say is that what it means to serve in the, in the military in the 20th, 20th century, that comes into shape during the First World War, because mm-hmm. it's the first war where we conscript a mass army. And it's the first war in which the federal government, right from the very beginning, is sort of orchestrating the war effort. Yeah. So what we think about now is joining the military. That's not what it looks like. You join the military in the Civil War, or you you join the military in Spanish-American War. That's not what. That's not what it looks like. You're you're joining reg- local units. Mm-hmm. You're, you're coming from your town. It's all people you you've lived with. This idea of mass military service—you kind of come in, melting pot. The government could do whatever it wants. With yeah. That's the first, that happens in the First World War, and that creates the paradigm for what it means to serve in the military.
0: So at present, like, how do you think that um, we could better apply what we learned about World War One into like legislation or how we run things in America?
1: It's always a little challenging when you, um Want to take a lessons learned approach to history where you say, well, let's look at the past and figure out what we did wrong and not do it again. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in the Second World War, I'll just use that example before I answer your question. Uh, we saw it there very much. People wanted to learn lessons, so like, "Oh, it's a huge mistake to fight in World War One. Yeah. We're not gonna, we're not doing that again." Mm-hmm. So a lot of Americans forget that World War Two actually started in 1939, yeah, and we stayed on the sidelines for two and a half years, yes, just like we did in the First World War. Mm-hmm. And you can legitimately ask if it had not been for Pearl Harbor, how long would it have taken us exactly. to actually, you know, to, you know, mobilize fully for the for the for the war that we ended up fighting? It or would we would we ever have done that? Yeah. So. In, you know, now you can look at that and say, oh, you learned the wrong lesson. Like We should have jumped right in. Mm-hmm. We should have realized you know, yeah. this was a different conflict, but people don't necessarily see it that way. I think that what we're seeing in the world today when we, uh, say, for example, see something like Ukraine, mm-hmm. we're actually seeing parallels with how people felt in 1914 when Europe went to war. Why would we send troops there? Why would we? You know, is this really our job? Yeah. Um, isn't that going to be? Isn't that going to be dangerous? Isn't it going to escalate the situation? Um, um, and so I think that there's there's a kind of similar doubting of whether or not this is. You know, what what should we be? What should we be doing? Mm-hmm. So we're we're and I'm, but believe me, I am not advocating that we get involved <laughs> in the fighting in Ukraine. But I think yeah. it shows that we, in some ways, the First World War and the kind of Questions people had about America's role in the world—we're sort of grappling with that once again, mm-hmm. and and um, and there. So we may be at a moment where that Wilsonian vision is being challenged more directly than it ever has. Yeah, and I think we definitely saw that during the Trump presidency, where mm-hmm. we really, for the first time, had a president that was willing to sort of reject that idea of that's yeah. what America should do. And of course, the Biden presidency kind of reverts back to that. But we'll, it'll be interesting to see sort of how we how we go. Um, but I I think that in terms of, of the First World War, it's more useful to understand actually what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, because when you have the creation of the Soviet Union and and they annex Ukraine and mm-hmm. their idea is to create this sort of resurrect this, this, you know, um, uh, this. This domination of Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe and the way that, you know, Stalin uses a famine to bring Ukraine into line. And I think there that you're really seeing that this instability in Eastern Europe, which, of course, is also what led to the First World War, does have the capacity to be the trigger point for a broader conflict if people begin to feel that you know, their national interests are at stake. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think it's, it's probably more indicative of how the First World War impacted Europe. Yeah. so what we're seeing, what we're seeing today.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so kind of going back to uh, being a woman in your field, have you ever been um, told that you couldn't study something or that you shouldn't be studying like military history or they're like, oh, because I've talked with women who are like, I study women's work and they they, they like completely disregard that or I study something that's more male dominated or I study men and they say I shouldn't be studying that. Have you ever
1: felt that? Um, I don't think I was ever told not to study the military. I mean, I suppose I've been challenged at times that as a woman and as a woman without combat experience, mm-hmm. can I really understand oh, what it yeah. means to be in combat? Like, how can I that I don't you know that but that I think is also a a charge that gets leveled against male historians who don't have military service. Yeah. And that's where you get into kind of touchy area, because back to that point of not having sort of a biographical connection to the to the intellectual subject I'm studying. When you're studying history, I mean, you can never. Your experiences in some ways are irrelevant because Mm -hmm. even if you study, even if you experience the military today, yeah, what does that have to do with experiencing the military in 1917? And it may, you may, the jargon and the acronyms might, (laughs) you know, be easier for you to understand, but it's not the same experience. So sometimes... If you're um, transposing your present day experience onto the past, that could just be bad history. Yeah. So, but there are a lot of debates about that, um, especially sometimes with veterans groups that are like, "Well, I know, I know what I experienced, Mm. and what you're saying just doesn't gel with what my lived experience was." And that may be true, but as a historian, you can also see broader things than somebody in the moment can. Exactly. When you when you study soldiers in I was going to say, Ernest Hemingway has a great story called Soldier, Soldier's Home, mm-hmm. um, where he, he it's about a combat vet, veteran. And he comes home. He'd been in all the major battles. And as soon as he gets home, he starts reading like the, the history books that are being written about uh-huh. the battles he was in. And he's uh-huh. like, wow, he never read anything so fascinating because now he finally understood what was oh. going on. <laughs> you know, like, when wow. Like, like you, know, you have no idea. You're yeah, just, like, going over here and going over there you don't know what the what the big picture is exactly so that's you know that's usually what historians are trying to are trying to pull back and, and yeah
0: offer. wow yeah so what kind of change do you think needs to occur in your field in terms of gender equality and do you have any ideas of ways that could be like implemented i don't know it's like a big question but
1: it's a big question I wouldn't say, I mean, I would maybe say in academia at large, so maybe history overall, Mm -hmm. I think there are definitely some aspects of the way the careers are structured that disadvantage women, Yeah. especially um, coming in as a junior uh, faculty member um, and having a seven-year tenure clock to get, you know, if if you're lucky enough to have a tenure-track position, Mm -hmm. seven years to achieve tenure. And this often conflicts quite directly with the timing in life when many women are thinking about starting a family, for instance. And, I mean, we do now um, uh, have a paid maternity leave, Mm -hmm. but when I first came to Chapman, we did not have that. And so even things like that, like being the ability to stop your tenure clock. But even that's a little tough because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we saw during the pandemic that for a lot of people it was hard for everybody, but if you had children at home and you yeah. were also having to deal with remote schooling or young children at home, so it's not like you could just, you know, stick them in front of a you know, a, a yeah. computer and do your work all day, that, that those were things that made um, your productivity a lag. Mm-hmm. And if uh, you're, depending on where you are in your career, that could be very detrimental to you. So I think that there's no reason that seven years is the magic number for, how yeah. productive one can be in their scholarly life, and it also frontloads a lot of expectations on you that mm-hmm. um, you know the most rigorous review you'll ever go is you'll ever go through is at that seven-year point when yeah. maybe some scholars take longer to actually evolve, and so I think that for women that that really poses challenges, and it's kind of the standards are the same, but mm-hmm. yet they're like you know where they are in their lives and what how they're trying to to, to manage work-life balance might be quite different. And, um, you know, in my own life, I mean, I was just lucky enough that my husband had flexible work hours. Yeah. And, and we sort of, and, and quite honestly, we just put, you know, my career came first. I mean, mm-hmm. I just say that and thank him for that. But without that support, I wouldn't have been able to have the opportunities I had to, you know, take grants that, that allowed me to travel for a year. Yeah. And my family could come because he was willing to, to come. and. Mm-hmm and sort of change jobs to make that happen. And I mean, not everybody's in that situation. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's one thing. And then I think that the other part of it is sort of going back to your earlier question about mentoring and mm-hmm. making sure that, um, you know, depending on your field history, there's a lot of women in there now, Yeah. but certainly if you get into some of the science fields, engineering, that's mm-hmm. not the case. And, and also even in our field, I mean, as we, not just male women, but we think about um, women of color, exactly. we want to be sure that we're creating uh, communities and, and doing cohort hires so that people come in feeling that they have peers. Mm-hmm. Junior faculty want to talk to other junior faculty. I mean, I'm evaluating people, so they might come to me a little bit, but I'm not necessarily <laughs> in that relationship. Yeah. So we're trying to, especially within Wilkinson, create those kind of communities so that we're we're bringing people who will thrive we want people to succeed and how can we create environment in which that is possible
0: yeah um kind of going off of that every episode i ask what is some advice that you would want to give to a young woman um maybe in university maybe still in high school um that wants to be a historian
1: oh wow <laughs> um <laughs> I guess I would say that, I mean, don't let people pigeonhole you. I mean, I did get told a lot of times, so what aspect of women's history are you writing on? Uh-huh. I love women's history. I yeah. read it all the time, but it wasn't it wasn't my passion at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, so I think that it's important that um, you feel, uh, f- you, you follow your own intellectual interests and that you remember that one of the most wonderful things about an academic career is that you get every day to 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 go to work and do what you love and when people would ask me like why are you um you know why don't you go into business you can make so much more money because i said well every day i get to teach what i want i get to i get to write I get what i want i get to study what i want i mean it's great it's a great luxury to have to, to have a life like that i'm saying i love every single minute i mean you know grading's hard and you know things yeah. are hard but but in general, you, get, you, can, you can live like a, an intellectually interesting life. That was my passion. That's what I really wanted to do. So for women, and I guess I would not, I'd say that for male students too. I mean, if a male student wants to study women history, women's history, why not? Yeah. So I think we have to kind of get away from some of those old stereotypes. That's awesome. I always
0: end my episode with asking um, you to tell me about a woman in your field that you admire. So who is someone either right now or um, when you were younger?
1: Um, I think that in my field, there's so many. Wow, that's a hard that's a hard one um, uh, to to think about. I think that right now there is um, there's a woman, Beth Bailey, who teaches at the University of Kansas, and I mm-hmm. think I really admire her because she is somebody who's had an adventurous life, and um, she writes in military history. Um, more in society studies, but she had written about courtship, um, about um, all sorts of different things beforehand. But I think what I really uh, admire about her is that she also has worked, and I've kind of tried to emulate her, so I guess she's in a sense my role model, emulate the way that she is also trying to facilitate um, career paths for younger scholars, conversations, collaborations. She's an incredibly generous Mm -hmm. um, uh, colleague, And, and I just love the fact that she has traveled the world, and she's embraced life, and she's embraced all these possible experiences that an academic life can, can open up to you. And I've tried to do the same thing by living in Paris, living in Australia, yeah. traveling the world, you know, at different conferences and been places. I mean, I went to Saudi Arabia a few years ago. And That's awesome. I went to Moscow. I mean, a place wow. I never thought yeah. I was gonna go. <laughs> and I was a bit nervous, <laughs> but I did it. And, um, and she really inspires me in that, to live life to its fullest. That's amazing. Well, that is
0: all for this episode. I hope you found my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Keene to be insightful and interesting. And a big thank you to Dr. Keene for sitting down to chat with me about her work and her experiences. There will be links to Dr. Keene's work in the show notes below, so check them out. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at The Domain of Women or on Twitter at Olivia N. Maynor for podcast updates and other upcoming projects. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next time. Bye.